so great to see you guys today. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. You may not know that because it's been a while since we've been rotated up to see you guys in Logan. We're so delighted, Sally and I, whenever we get a chance to come up. We're in the series called The Pursuit. Okay, and as, as I've been thinking about this message today, it got me thinking about all the people who made an investment in my life in right when I first became a follower of Jesus. So I came to faith in Christ in the middle of my college years. And some of the key people who were involved in my formation at that time, I remember a, a young adult pastor at the church that I started to attend, Sam Talbert. And Sam had a, had a great way of asking really tough questions that got me thinking and, and giving me opportunities to, to grow. And then there was a guy who led a Bible study group that a lot of the young adults went to. His name is Ken Waters. And Ken invested in, in all the guys in that group. The most interesting one, probably maybe the most significant one in many ways, was a friend of mine named Kathy Cole. Now, Kathy's significant and interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, she's the one who initially invited me to come to her church and to hear, that's where I heard the gospel for the first time and surrendered my life to Jesus and, and entrusted my eternity to him. At, at one Sunday night at the church, based on her invitation, she was there with me at that time. And so she knew that I needed, as a new believer, I needed to be discipled. And so Kathy says, let's do a Bible study together. We were both students on campus. We'd just hang out between classes. She said, let's do this Bible study together. I said, that sounds great. What's a Bible study? I had no idea, you know. But Kathy had this personal conviction. She didn't think it was appropriate for her as a woman to teach me as a male. For whatever reason, that's her, her conviction. So she says, we're going to do this Bible study together, and guess what? You're going to lead it. I thought, well, that's one way to make a disciple, I guess. Just throw them in the deep end and see if they could swim. I had no idea. And in retrospect, that was really good for me to get put in way over my head, where all I had, to, all I had was I could just trust God and, and, and just let him lead, you know. And so I could think of a number of other people that I could name from those early formative years that had a, a real impact in my pursuit of God. And as I got thinking about that, I really bring that up because, because I want to ask you a couple questions about that today. First of all, who would you name who had that role to play in your life? Who were the people who invested in you? And I want to encourage you as you identify them to thank God for them. For the pivotal role, maybe it was even a small role, but thank God that they were available, that they were willing to say yes to the opportunity, that they were willing to be led by God. And maybe, maybe for them it was a step of faith to take you under their wing. But then the second question is this, who would name you? Who would put your name on their list of people who had an influence for Christ in their life? Who are some of the, the people that, that 20 years from now that they would name you the way I've been naming Sam Talbert and Kathy Cole and others? Who would name you? Because I think, I would pray that every single one of us would have the privilege of being Named by somebody having the investment in their life. You know what? It's not a special privilege just for a few, just for a young adult pastor or a Bible study leader. It's a privilege that Jesus gives to every single one of us 
to be able to invest in someone's life to make a disciple. So here's where we're at in this series. We've been in the pursuit series, we've been following this these three arrows around this circle. We call it the pursue God pathway. It's like a summary of what it means to grow and become mature as a Christian. And so we said we start by trusting Jesus. We live to honor God and ultimately we become mature, we come full circle when we make other disciples ourselves. And so let me ask those same two questions. Who helped you to trust in Jesus? For me, Kathy Cole and others as well. Who helped you to trust in Jesus back in the day? And then who have you helped to come to faith in Christ? Who has helped you to live a life that honors God, that helped you to to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a practical way day to day? And then the other side of that is, who have you helped to honor God in their life? Well, today we've come to the final part of this circle, the final stage in this maturity pathway. <clears throat> we, lived, we, we, learned, we make disciples. So maybe many of us, I, I don't know, I've been in the Christian world for a long time now, and I know that a lot of Christians would see the goal of the Christian life is to live a life that honors God. In other words, maybe you know you're a, you're a good person. You've your character's been formed, your integrity, and God has been working out in your life, working out some of the sinful habits and patterns from the past, and and you've been sanctified. You you give, you serve, you're involved in the life of the church, and and um, most most Christian churches in America would stop right there, and say, then that man, you're living the life. That's that's what God wants from you, for you to have. But, but honestly, that's not the finish line that Jesus had in mind. Jesus said, go make disciples. And yet many Christians have never really considered that making disciples is, is part of God's call on their life. That maybe that's for somebody else or for a few spiritual commandos. Or, but, but, but I'm an ordinary Christian. Never considered that maybe that's something that Jesus had in mind for me to do. And so I want to talk about today why we consider that, why we take that seriously. Why make disciples? Well, I got a little surprise for you. Today's the the last message in the series. Now, there's 12 topics in the pursuit. This is message 10. So, and we're going to end right here. Not because those last two are unimportant, but because we actually covered those last two topics, number 11 and number 12, yesterday in the mentor training workshop that many of you attended. And so hopefully, um, if you missed that, you'll have an opportunity to go back. We'll do another mentor training workshop just as soon as we hear from a couple people who want to do it. Or we have a number of mentors who can take you through those lessons individually, personally, so you can assimilate number 11 and number 12 and, and complete the process. Or even if you've missed a lot of the pursuit series because you've been traveling this summer or whatever it might be, we have mentors who can take you through the series to make sure you have this, this whole foundation, this framework of what it means to be a mature disciple of Jesus. And so that would be important, but in the workshop and the future workshop and so forth, we're talking about the how, how to make disciples. Today, we're talking about the biblical reasons why. Why should we consider this? Why should we do this? Because honestly, I've met a lot of Christians who would just say, no, I I can't make a disciple. 
I can't really ever mentor somebody. And the most common reason I hear is because they say, well, I'm not mature enough yet. And you know what? I hear that from people who have been Christians for, for years. I hear that from people who have heard a thousand, ten thousand sermons, who've been in Bible study groups year after year after year, from Christians who, honestly, to be, if you really evaluate it, who really know more Bible than the first century Christians knew. And yet we think, man, I just, if I only I could, I'll be, I'm ready to disciple somebody after I take one more class, after I read one more book. And we always keep moving the, the finish line a little farther out, a little farther out. But the Bible flips that thinking completely on its head. The Bible's perspective is not, look, I need to get more mature first before I make a disciple. The Bible's perspective is, that's actually how I become mature in my faith. I grow mature by investing in somebody else, and God uses that experience to really get me going and to teach me the things that He wants to teach me and do the things He wants to do in my life. And so today... We're going to look at three reasons why this matters, why we keep talking about this, why we do this, why we emphasize making disciples at Alpine Church. Three reasons why. So follow along with me. The first reason is simply because Jesus said so. Okay, I could stop right there, okay? Jesus said make disciples. Now when we talk about that, let me, let me give you definition first. What I mean by making disciples is not necessarily just doing a class or giving people more knowledge or information, but what I'm talking about is individually helping another person pursue God. All their questions, all the issues that come up, and, and in other words, we do that by walking them through the pursue God circle. We, so it may mean that, that we have some role to play in helping that person come to trust in Christ initially. That we might have some role to play in helping them shape their Christian life to honor God. We might have some role to play in helping release them to do that in someone else's life. So it's walking a person through that whole circle or through parts of that circle. You know, God uses different people. Somebody might have a role to play in one arrow and uh, one, one segment, and you might have a role to play in another segment. But I'm invested, I'm, I'm connected in their life. And the reason we do that is because Jesus made it a thing. Jesus said to do it. Matthew <clears throat> chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There wasn't enough room on the slide for that, but I'll just read it to you, right? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus says, I have all authority. In heaven and on earth. And on the basis of that, he said, I'm sending you out. He says, I'm investing that authority in you. So there's two levels in which that works. Number one is Jesus is, is the boss of us. right? He's our Lord. He has authority. So when he says some, to do something, as Christ's followers, we do it. But there's more to it than that. It's not just a command here, but he's also giving us the privilege the power, the authentication to go and make disciples in his name. It's like a police officer, you know, stops speeders and arrests crooks, and they do that all. They don't do that on their own authority, but they do that because they've been, been empowered 
by society, by the government, the people to do that. They don't just you know, create a uniform. They put on a uniform that's given to them. And so they've been authorized to go do that. In the same way, you and I have been authorized and empowered by Jesus to go and make disciples. Now, that circle that we showed you before, the Pursue God circle, this is the verse, this is the passage that is the biblical basis for that. And the three elements of the circle are all found right here. First of all, we say, you know, we start by trusting Jesus. Well, this passage starts, talks about the start. He says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that, that's the beginning because baptism is the initial public expression of our commitment to follow Jesus, of our faith in Him. It's the outward symbol of the internal reality. And so part of helping people pursue God, again, is helping them to come to the place where they choose to follow Jesus, introducing them to a relationship with Him. So Making disciples is not just taking church people and making them better church people. It's not even just taking new believers and helping them to understand what the Bible says and how to follow Jesus. There's an indispensable part of making disciples that starts when we go, Jesus says. He says, go, we get outside of our bubble, we get outside of our comfort zone, and we engage people to introduce them to Jesus as he gives us opportunity to do that. So my wife Sally, for example, <clears throat> recently she had a conversation with a friend from her tennis team. And there's another woman been, who's been talking to, the, another Christian woman been talking to her friend too. So her friend texts her the other day and says, what, what this whole thing about following Jesus, she had questions about how that relates to the spiritual framework that, that she grew up in. And she's trying to understand, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Sally had an opportunity. She's not mentoring her in a formal way, but she had an opportunity in that relationship to help her pursue God. And hopefully her friend will come to faith in Jesus. And then Sally might be able to mentor her through the rest of the process when that happens. So number one, we start by trusting Jesus. Number two, we live to honor God. And here we see that. Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's, in a nutshell, the life that honors God is a life of obedience to Him. Notice he doesn't say teaching them to know and understand everything I've taught you. Now that's, many churches in, the, in America will, will settle for that to say, you know what, the definition of a disciple is you have more knowledge, more information about the Bible, theology, whatever. Yes, it's important to have good, sound, biblical knowledge but it doesn't stop there. We're not satisfied. What we re Jesus is really calling for is a life that puts that into practice to honor him. And then the third part, we say, you know, uh, we make disciples. And that takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the verse where Jesus says, go and make disciples. And so here's where it comes full circle. Because if we're really teaching people to obey everything that Jesus commanded... Well, that would certainly include this very command itself, to go make disciples. So true disciple-making, if it's not helping people to go and, and make disciples themselves, that's not real disciple-making. It's only part disciple-making. Now, we call it the Pursue God Circle, but it's really more like a spiral because it goes forward in the life of another person. 
as they pick up the mantle and they begin to do what I've done in their life. So first of all, Jesus said, we do it because Jesus said to do it. And he set it up for us here in Matthew chapter 28. But I was asking myself, <clears throat> yes, Jesus said to do it, but why did he make it such a priority? Why did Jesus make this such an important part of his final words to his disciples? And so I want to look at a couple of other reasons that support this. Uh, the second reason that we make disciples is that biblically, God's people are supposed to do the work of ministry, not just pastors. God's people are supposed to do the work. Let me give you an example, just from my own experience. And you might discern that this is a bit of a pet peeve for me, okay? I've been, I've been in pastoral ministry for 39 years. And for 39 years, I've never been great at hospital visits. Okay, it's kind of part of the job, part of the job description in America at least. Every church I've ever been serving, there's tons of people who are way better at that and way more gifted at that than I am. Because I don't have a gift of compassion or a gift of... It's not that I don't care. I have a gift of teaching. And so if I come to the hospital room beside you, I'll just probably end up spending the whole time explaining to you the theology of suffering or you know, something like that, when, when what you really want is to be comforted and encouraged. And so you'll be wishing I left. But there's people there who have those gifts of encouragement and, and mercy who are going to make you feel so very blessed and loved and you wish they would never leave. Yet... What I've learned over the years is that if the pastor doesn't show up at the hospital, people get offended. It's got to be the pastor, even if I don't have those gifts. And so I bring that up because I think that reflects a cultural idea of what a pastor's job description is supposed to be. There's lots of expectations that people have for pastors just because they're the pastor that aren't necessarily rooted in Scripture, right? So what does the Bible say a pastor's job description is? Well, part of that, a big part of that, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. By the way, pastors and teachers, that's kind of a hyphenated thing. So the, that's one office, not two, the pastor-teacher. Okay, what's their job? Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So you have these primary spiritual leaders, and the Bible says that their job is to equip other people to do their part. And the body of Christ gets built up not from, not from the pastors doing the work, but when the people of God embrace their gifting and, and their work that God gave them to do. So it's like, you think about it like this, it's like a, the coach on the football team, his job is not to go out and, and throw blocks and make tackles and catch passes. His job is to equip the players to go out and do that and put them in the right position, the right person, the right place to succeed and to train them and discipline them and all the things that they need to succeed in the role that their role on the team. So if the coach is out there doing all this, you think, man, there's something wrong with this. This team's a mess. And likewise, it's not necessarily the pastor's job to do all the hospital visits or whatever it is that it, you might think. It's the pastor's job to help people with those gifts find the right place to serve and to succeed in that ministry. So in our culture, <clears throat> the culture tells us that 
The past, probably the pastor's main job is to preach. Now, that's an important biblical thought. That's an, it's important in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul told young Timothy, this young pastor that he had mentored over the years, he told him, preach the word of God. But in our culture, the way that takes shape is that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the pastors preach the word of God and the people spectate. Listen, soak it in, go home, and maybe don't do anything to make any impact in the life of anybody else. The pastor's job is biblically is not to keep the wheels of the organization turning so that we have all the programs and all the ministries that we want the church to have. Now, those can be good things. But the main job of the pastor here we see in Ephesians is to help God's people do the work to build up the body of Christ. So he's coaching, he's encouraging, he's casting vision, he's training, he's recruiting, he's challenging people to do what God gave them to do. You know, when, when Christians in a church just spectate, that's why a lot of pastors get worn out. And that's why a lot of people don't grow in their faith. And so I want to I ask you to challenge the stereotypes that you have about what you think the pastor's job description ought to be. So the principle here, God's people should do the work. That's why we make disciples. That's why we emphasize this, because we want to release the people of God into this significant ministry that God has, has set aside for you. The pastors are here to help you do that. Now, there's a specific application of that in another New Testament passage. Again, it's Paul's instructions to the young Timothy, the young pastor that he had mentored in 2 Timothy um, that's where, that's kind of like his final word to Timothy. Paul knows that he's going to die pretty soon, pass from the scene. And so he gives this final word to Timothy, final instructions to this young guy. And that's where he told him to preach the word. But I want you to notice what else Paul told Timothy to do in that same book of the Bible. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now you teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others as well. That explains how pastors are to equip God's people. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to go mentor some people one-on-one -on -one with the goal that those people will be able to mentor other people too. And the people that they mentor will be able to mentor other people too. So there's a spiritual reproduction that takes place through multiple generations spiritually where we pour into somebody else the knowledge, the attitude, the heart, the skills, whatever we've gained that God uses in our life, we pour that into somebody else who can pour it into somebody else as well. Now there's a prominent <clears throat> church a few years ago, actually in 2008, they did a big survey of their ministry. This is probably the largest and most influential church of its time. Um, this church had everything. The pastor was one of the greatest communicators in, in, in the Christian world in, in that generation. They had amazing worship. They had a fantastic presentation. They had awesome classes led by very gifted teachers. They had a small group network that any church would be envious of. But they, did, they decided they needed to dig in to find out what was really going on in their ministry. And they discovered that, that a lot of people weren't really growing into maturity in faith. The majority were not. And yet people were very involved in the church for years. But they, they reported that they felt like they're stagnated in their growth. 
and that they were dissatisfied with their Christian life and with their experience in the church. These are strong stage two Christians. They're living to honor God. So why were they so dissatisfied? Why were they dropping out of church? Well, my interpretation of the study is that, you know, I look at American church culture, I think it's relatively easy after a while to get bored with church. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, right? So, but, but you've probably felt it. Maybe some of you are just bored with church right now because you've heard this sermon before. If you've been around for, for a couple of decades, maybe even, maybe even shorter than that, there's probably every sermon that you hear on Sunday, you've heard at least key elements of it before. You've done your turn in kids' church, and you've done it more than once. And it comes back around again, and you decide you take another turn in kids' church. Well, so what's left in church? What's left? Well, the problem, I think, is that church, and many churches like it in America, are relying on programs to disciple people instead of inviting people to step up and disciple people. Do you see the difference? Because I, here's my conviction, with all my heart I believe, that when people are actively helping other people pursue God, they don't get bored with Christianity. They don't get bored with the Christian life or with the church. Because you have purpose. You're, you're, you've discovered what you were created to do, what Jesus called us to do. Not content to just let the pastors do it. So when we sit on the sidelines, it's not that we're just getting God's design backwards. But it's that we're missing out on what gives juice to the Christian life. Missing out on the calling and the purpose that Jesus gave us to energize us, to empower us, to make a a difference that counts for eternity. Because the people of God are called to do the work, not just the pastors. Now, of course, it's not just about what makes your Christian life satisfying. You know that. So let me give you the final point, the final reason why we put so much emphasis on individually making disciples, making disciples in one-on-one relationships, in small groups, in our families, why we put so much emphasis on that, why Jesus made this a priority. I think a big part of it is this third thing, that we make disciples because the crowds around us are confused and helpless, because people need help. People need help with life. I was just thinking this week about my own small circle of friends and family and neighbors. There's a, there's a woman on my softball team who, who just was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor in her leg. She had one surgery. She's got another surgery coming up. She's 40 years old. That's a tough blow. There's another guy on my team who has an adult autistic son who just demands a lot of support from his family. They love him, of course. He's a great kid. But he just needs a lot of support to get around and, and to, to work and, and so forth. It just, it's a burden. They love him. They would never call it a burden, but it, it weighs on them. I have a neighbor down the street who was killed by a car on the 4th of July one month ago. I have another neighbor. His wife passed away. He's in declining health. He's struggling with life. 
There's a young woman in our family who's frightened about climate change, and she looks at the, the Great Salt Lake drying up and says, what happens at the end? She, she says, I'm going to be around for a few more decades. What happens when the lake dries up and these toxic chemicals get blown into the wind? And, she, and, and she's not making it. She's really, really frightened about the future. And there's another young man in my family who's trying to put his life together again after a very toxic marriage ended in divorce. Jesus saw all that and more, and it motivated him. Look at Matthew chapter 9 in verse 36. When Jesus saw these crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Three things that Jesus could see about the crowds. He could see that they were confused. People need truth. And sometimes they're not only going to hear that truth from people that they trust, who they know love them. The second thing people need is is they're helpless. They need strength. And sometimes that means someone coming alongside to help bear the burden. And third, Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd. People need guidance and care. And so Jesus responds to this. He says, people need a shepherd. Wait, I'm the good shepherd. I should just work harder. No, he didn't say that. He said, look, there's this great harvest of needy people. We don't need a few people to work harder. We need more people to join the work. We need more people to engage. He says, pray for the Lord of the harvest. As great as sermons and programs and ministry and ministries are, people need others to personally care and come alongside in relationship with them to help them process and apply God's truth to the challenges of their life. And so Jesus says, here's the answer, pray Pray for more workers. Now, he kind of didn't leave it there. Now, that's the end of the chapter. But if you turn the page into chapter 10, in the very next verses, kind of where Jesus took that, he took that prayer. He said, look, look, disciples, look, my followers, I want you to pray. But then he, the very next thing he did was he sent them out. He sent them out into the crowds to do what they had seen him do. And so he says, look, there's a fundamental way in which you, my followers, you are the answer to that prayer. The answer might be God brings someone else in from somewhere else that we don't know. The answer might be that God takes us who are already here and sends us out, sends us into the crowds, to send us to do this work. So the workers that Jesus is talking about, the workers that people around us need, the workers that we're praying for, for God to raise up and send, they're already here in these chairs on Sunday morning. They're already sitting in your chair and the chairs around you. They just need to catch a vision for why we go and make disciples and then get trained in how to do it. And again, we're going we're gonna to offer that training workshop as soon as anybody wants it, really. And, and we have mentors, again, who can walk you through that training. If you sense the Holy Spirit saying, you got to do this, this is what I'm nudging you to do, and you know the Holy Spirit's empowering you as a Christ follower to do it, then then. Take the next step with us, because we can then provide the how. 
to help you put that into play. Now, I have a friend. <clears throat> Her name is Tanya, Tanya Toole. She operates a ministry down in Salt Lake called uh, Holding Out Help. Now, Tanya, years, a few years ago, she was just an average churchgoer. She was sitting in church on Sunday. In fact, more than that, she had her own struggles. She had issues in her own life she was dealing with. She had just been diagnosed with cancer. And so she's sitting in church. She's got a lot on her mind, a lot to think about in her own life. When one Sunday she heard that the church announced that there was a family who was escaping polygamy that needed a temporary place to live. And Tanya and her husband had an empty basement, so they said they can live with us for a little while. And then as she started getting to know this family, and she heard from this, this plural wife the stories of her efforts and the challenges of breaking out of the toxic, controlling culture of polygamy and trying to help her kids get a fresh start and a new break in life, her heart was broken because she could see these people in that community confused and helpless and shepherdless. And God nudged her heart to do something. So beyond just that, taking in that temporary family, she, she started, she said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help another family after that. She started helping one family at a time, escaping polygamy. And later on, she got other people involved, and she started recruiting other host homes, because when people found out that she was available, then suddenly the demand begins to go up, and so she recruited other host homes, and eventually she was able to purchase a a safe house down in Draper, where families could come and live and stay as long as they need to to get their feet on the ground, and she began to recruit other services. So, you know, women in polygamy society, they, they don't have a driver's license, she, was, she told me about how, helping this one woman who had an elementary school education. But to break free from polygamy, she needed to be financially self-sufficient. So she helped this woman earn her college degree. She's got these young people coming out who have nowhere to turn. They need to get a job. She, all these things, so she's recruited people to help them to do that. And over the course of time, she's led many of these women and children, and even an occasional man led them to faith in Christ. And many of these women now are also making disciples of other women coming out of polygamy who are just one or two steps behind them. Now, Tanya, now the ministry she leads is a $1 million annual budget. But here's a woman just sitting in church one day, absorbed with her own problems, and she heard Jesus say, do it. You notice that that God did not call a pastor to start that ministry. He called an ordinary woman sitting in church. Now listen, I'm not challenging you to start a $1 million ministry today. What I'm challenging you to do is go make a disciple. Just one disciple. Just start with one. Go get trained. Go figure out how you can mentor somebody. Make yourself available to the leaders of, of Logan Campus to mentor somebody, to help somebody go full circle. Because if you're a Christ follower, you can do that. The fact is, until you embrace that calling, you haven't gone full circle yourself. You've only gone two-thirds of the way around. And so I think some of us are not as mature in Christ as we like to think we are. Because no matter how many 
Bible studies you've been to, no matter how many Bible verses you know, no matter, no matter how many sermons you've heard, no matter how many serving teams that you've been involved in, those are all great, those are important, but there's something missing in your maturity until you start to disciple others. And when you do, you're going to grow like never before. God's going to use that. You've got to have answers now. You've got to step out in faith. You've got to do some things you never thought you were going to do to help somebody else. And so God is going to use your involvement in somebody else to grow you like never before. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your goodness to us. That you have invited us to be part of what you're doing in this world that you've given us this incredible privilege of having a role to play, Father, and we pray that every one of us, someday we'd be able to say, man, somebody would name me in their process of growth and faith. Somebody would name me because Jesus gave me a role to play. Father, I just pray for everybody right now. Is anybody in the room right now who's kind of bored with church? Kind of been there, done that, heard that sermon, served in that ministry. Father, I pray that you'd captivate our heart with the possibilities of what you can do through us in the lives of other people, just one-on-one, entering their world, caring, listening, sharing, guiding them, pointing them toward Jesus. Father, what you would do through us, give us the privilege of discovering, even as we grow, of discovering how you could use us eternally in the life of somebody else. Thank you so much for your goodness, God. Thank you so much that you want us to experience the best of life as we discover our calling that you gave us to go make disciples. And so, Father, each one of us, we've got practical questions to work out and issues to think about and things that are holding us back and things that we're not sure about. I pray, Father, that you'd lead us to the next steps so that we can discover what you want to do through our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.